Hey, we are so glad that you are here uh, for part five of, of a series we've called More. Um, it's, uh, it's one that's been kind of building week upon week. And if you've missed any of the previous uh, four messages, you can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks and uh, catch up on there. There's some video and some audio as, as well. But it's been a series where we, we started by, with a question that seems basic and pretty safe, but it's kind of loaded a little bit. Uh, what is it that you want? What are some of the things that you want in life? What you want reveals what you value. Uh, what you really want reveals what you value. What, what you value is what's most important to you. And what we said is the, uh, a lot of times the safe answer to that question is just simply more. In fact, I don't know about you, I mentioned this last week. Because of this series, I have been so aware of commercials on television promising me more. And they won't even define what more is. It's always just you deserve more of whatever it is that we're selling. And sometimes the, the object, or whatever, I don't even know what more would look like. Uh, so like AT&T is like, you deserve more. I'm like, more phone calls? I don't want more phone calls. More storage, I guess. I could see how that would be a value. But I, but I sit there and I go, uh-huh, uh-huh, I do. I deserve more. You know what, Dagana? I do. Thank you very much, AT&T, for figuring that out. Uh, I am a loyal customer and I do deserve more. We've been, we've been ingrained and inundated with this idea of more. And so uh, when we're asked the question, what is it that you want? A safe play is always just to say, I don't know, just more. Heads on, my head's down. I'm plowing through life. I'm trying to get through this. I'm trying to raise kids. I've got you know, uh, all kinds of sports practices and ballerina practices and everything. I'm just, I'm just trying to go. And what I need is more time for myself. What I need is a little bit more money, a little bit more margin. And the answer, the safe answer is always more. But that does something to us. That mentality of I deserve more or more is a goal does something to us because whether we're aware of it or not, our wants are primarily shaped externally, meaning through, we said, liturgies, rituals, and habits. Liturgy is kind of a fancy um, spiritual religious word, but this idea of what the things that we find ourselves doing, though that, that actually shapes what it is that we want. Listen, good marketers know this. They are in the business of trying to change your habits. They know if I can change their habits, and if I can centralize those habits around our products, people will inevitably end up wanting our products. Costco knows this. That's why they are strategic about what they put on the end of aisles as opposed to in the middle of an aisle in the very back, right? Uh, Amazon knows this. This is why you can click on one link one time for some sort of a shirt or a handbag or something, go to a completely different site, and in the ads under this article on the news of what's happening in Spain or whatever this week, you see, by the way, your shopping bag is still waiting for you over here at Amazon. You're like, how do you know this? You're stalking me. This is kind of this is kind of weird, but um, they they get this. They understand that we are shaped by those things. And if that is true, then the conclusion that we kind of dealt with at the beginning of the series was: if we are unreflectively immersed, means if we don't think about this, if we don't realize this, if we don't come to grips with the reality that we are shaped by the habits we find ourselves in, if we are unreflectively immersed in the liturgies of consumerism, we will over time learn that the end goal of life is acquisition and consumption. And that the reason for our existence is acquisition to get as many things as we can and consumption to use it, to experience it through upgrades and experiences. That is the end goal of life. Now, I use that word end goal. I want to teach you a new word today to impress your friends or fill out a crossword puzzle at some point in your life. Um, The word is called telos, T-E-L-O-S. The telos of something is the envisioned end 
of something, of an item or a thing or a, a passion or a life, right? This is the end goal of this. So if you, in a couple of weeks, go over to your grandma's house for Thanksgiving, like I had to go over to my grandma's house, and uh, inevitably we, we show up, and what she like has this tradition of doing is she pulls out a puzzle. I don't do puzzles 364 days of the year. But on, three, on one day a year, usually around Thanksgiving, I'll go to her house, there's a puzzle on the table. And what, and what, what happens is nobody starts off going, hey, let's all do a puzzle. That doesn't draw or attract anybody. When somebody pulls off the box and they're eating their pecan pie and they put a couple of pieces together that match, and all of a sudden like the border starts coming together, and all of a sudden people start coming in and offering their expertise and offering their insights and helping us out. And, Eventually, it becomes this group effort. We put this, we put this puzzle together. And the reason that we're able to do it, it, it effectively when it's, when it's going well, what we do a lot of times is we set the box right here. And we look at the box and be like, that's what we're going for, everybody. Everybody, look at the blue is on top. That's the sky, okay? So we're going for sky first and the edges and all of the yellow stuff. That's the school bus. That's in the lower left corner. And you're asking, what kind of a puzzle are you putting together? I don't know. I'm just making these up as I go, okay? But something with a sky and a school bus. But we look at the end goal, and it helps shape what we're trying to do. Listen, if you're unclear of the, in, un, uh, of the envisioned end of something, it can be difficult to be able to put together. You, some of you dads are going to buy a bike for your kid this Christmas, and lo and behold, Target sells them to you unput together. They look like they're put together when you like wheel them up and they're like, oh, by the way, here's the box for the parts. You're going to want to add all these things. And you're going, I can do this. I got this. I don't want an instruction manual. I don't, I don't need step-by-step instructions. Show me a picture of what the end looks like. I think I can get it close. I think I can get it close to what that is the envisioned end for it. So we look at it and we're like, okay, I think that goes there. I think that goes there, right? When the envisioned end is unclear, when you're not sure of what it's supposed to look like, it is really hard to understand whether something is good or right or correct or appropriate for that scenario. Here's a classic example. Um, About a year ago, uh, we were at a small group, and one of the guys in my small group, his name is John, he leads worship sometimes for us, and he said, um, hey, I've got a bunch of homebrew equipment sitting in my garage. We've got our third kid, and we've got this new house, and I just, and I got a new job, and it's just been impossible for me to find the time to be able to, to do this anymore. Does anybody you know, want it or want to buy it from me or whatever? And I said, I'm interested. Uh, tell me more about it. And he showed, he walked me out to the garage. I looked at him, I'm like, okay. And, and he's like, so here's what you do, man. Here's what it takes. You put this, that in there, you know, and you can turn tap water into an Imperial IPA. And listen, the end goal for me is cheap beer in that sense. So I'm like, okay, I'm interested. But you have to go buy the ingredients and you cannot buy these at like, you know, Yolks or Winco. You go to, I found it, you go to Ice Harbor, the old Ice Harbor, the one that's uh, down there by the railroad um, and off of Washington, and you go in, they have a homebrew shop, and they've got all these kinds of little buckets with Pilsner and wheats and this and rice holes and uh, yeasts and hops and all this kind of stuff. And I walk in, and I, and I look like I'm, I'm totally lost, because I am, because didn't, John didn't go with me. He just sent me and be like, Yo, you'll figure it out. And uh, no, I won't, but I'll, I'm going to go and act like, and I walk in, and there's a guy behind the counter. He's like, can I help you? But he's, he's, he's kind of a tough, gruff looking guy. He's kind of one of those guys who asks, can I help you? But you know, he doesn't mean it. And so I'm like, yeah, actually you can. I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to make this, this type of beer. Should I get this one or this one? And he goes, well, that depends on what you're making. And I'm like, well, I, I really, it, for me, I'm just infatuated with the alchemy of turning Pasco tap water into beer. So I just want that. I don't know. Should I get this or this? And he kept saying, it depends on what you're trying to make. 
And I'm like, really, Bob? How about you just tell me what to make and I'm just going to buy it? You know what I mean? <laughs> Why don't you just point at it and be like, that, those two will work. I, I, I'm not good. I don't care. I just, I, I, I just want something. Anyways, that, that's the point. I came in with an unclear telos, an unclear envision end, and he could not help me. He could not answer, is this the right yeast for you to buy? I don't know. I don't know what you're making, okay? In that same sense, what we, what we have said is, uh, listen, the, it, it's very clear the end, envision end of a life that is unreflectively immersed in the rituals of consumerism. The envisioned end is acquisition and consumption. The, the envisioned end is upgrades and experiences. And Paul, Paul is this apostle who writes a bunch of letters and they end up in the New Testament. They're collected by the church much later and said, this is, these are letters that provide some spiritual value for uh, and o- audiences beyond just the, um, the people addressed in these letters. And so they would say, we're going to capture these and, and, and collect them for history. And, and that's the, the, the New Testament that we have, and it, which is in our Bibles. And in one of those books, one of those letters in Galatians, he writes about an envisioned end, a telos for the Christian life. Here's what a life uh, that follows in the footsteps of Christ and is guided by the Spirit looks like. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it's known as the fruits of the Spirit for those of you who grew up in church. But he, for, the, for him, the telos was a life that produces things like love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control all naturally. And that's the key part. <clears throat> it's not a matter of choosing these things. If we saw these on a list, that's what we would want to do with our life. When we put up the virtue and the vice list that he presents in chapter five, none of us choose the vice list items over the virtue items. Even if you're not religious, you're like, well, love sounds pretty good. Love is love is love is love. Patience, peace, that sounds like I would want more of that in my life. Kindness gets me good jobs. Goodness makes me a good friend. Self-control sounds like a good financial move. I'll sign up for all of those. Those make sense to me. He would say, that's fine, that's great, but it's, it, the goal, the end goal is that it would be, this is the key word, that it would come naturally like fruit on a tree in an orchard, that it would flow out not by conscious decision, but by natural reaction. The goal would be a life where those things, I don't even have to think about those things. That's just what I do. See, a lot of times you and I, I'll just say for me, I want those types of things, but my natural reaction isn't those. Those are like option B. Those are the options that when I know somebody's watching me, that's what I do. When I know that I'm going to you know, get caught or whatever, that's that, then that's what I do. Or when I know it's important, that's what I do. But man, what if that was like the natural, the flow at which you could do it? That would be the life that you want. That's the telos that is desired. Um, the, a guy named David Foster Wallace, who was an author... Um, wrote a, an article in 2006 in the New York Times about Roger Federer, the tennis champion, probably one of the best tennis players ever to play the game, and we still have the opportunity to watch him in his greatness. He was playing Rafael Nadal in the 2006 Wimbledon finale, and this was an article leading up to it. And he was trying to write about how great these two guys are at tennis and how we, don't, we underestimate the greatness of their skill and their talent with the evolution of the game, how the game has changed, how the players have changed over time, how the equipment has kind of facilitated this change to make this the best tennis we've ever watched in our life. And he said this, he said, uh, what's amazing to watch 
is, the, our, is their ability, not our ability, their ability to return a serve that is coming at them at 120 to 130 miles an hour. That's what the serve speed of, of Roger Federer uh, at that time. And, and he says it's 78 feet from one baseline to the other baseline, which means it takes 0.41 seconds for the ball to go from one end of the court to the other, or 0.41 seconds is about the time it would take for you to blink quickly twice. Now, some of you just blink quickly twice just to test it out and see what that feels like, like I did. Like, that's what happens when you hear a stat like that, and you're like, ooh, that's fast. Okay. That's impressive. Nice work. Boom. Just like that, the ball is on you, and you have to react in that way. And what he's saying is you don't understand that it's not for them their ability to go, okay, the ball is coming it this way, therefore now logically deduction, the spin is that way, I need to go this way. He's like, no, 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 what you don't understand is how much of that takes place by the feel of the game. Let me, let me illustrate it. Here's the, here's the actual quote from the article. Successfully returning a hard serve tennis ball requires what's sometimes called the kinesthetic sense, meaning the ability to control the body and its artificial extensions, aka the racket, through complex and very quick systems of tasks. The training here is both muscular, right? We know about muscle memory, and neurological. Hitting thousands of strokes day after day develops the ability to do by feel what cannot be done, cannot be done by regular conscious thought. He's basically saying it is impossible for somebody in their brain to be able to have the ability to go through the mathematical equations to be able to identify what needs to be done, what type of an angle, and what type of a spin needs to be returned on this serve. You do it by feel, and the only way you do it by feel is by doing it hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of times. To do by feel what cannot be done by conscious, regular thought. Listen, when Paul says this is the telos of a life patterned after the, the lifestyle of Christ, what he's trying to say is not that may you choose joy and love and peace and kindness and self-control in those moments in which the circumstances of life rise to, to, for you to call to, to the occasion or rise to the occasion. He's saying the goal would be, could you do that naturally without even thinking of it? Can you be good reactionally? Not like, hey, I should probably do good here. This, some other people might be watching or this might be found out or this might be uh, something that you know, my, my wife knows about me or husband knows about me or anything like that. No, this is, could you do it naturally? This type of innate knowledge, this sense or a feel for the game. Gosh, I wanna have a feel for the game where I do the things of Christ without having to think about it. That's the telos that Paul's talking about in this way. I want to know things in, 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 uh, in the core of my being, in, in my bones. That's, a, that's like a, a, an illustration that a lot of people would use. I know it in my bones. I couldn't tell you sometimes the, the actual um, physical knowledge. Something Like, for instance, um, I met with a lady before first service, and uh, I, we were talking about the weather, and I said, man, it was foggy outside where I'm, I'm in Pasco, where I'm coming from. And she's like, oh, where are you from? And I said, oh, south, or, uh, south of, the, of 68, down by the river in this, uh, this Ivy Glades development. And she goes, oh, yeah, I used to deliver mail for 20 years. I was probably your mail delivery. And I was like, oh, cool. Um, you are the one that was always late. No, just kidding. I didn't say that. Um, I, I said, oh, awesome. And uh, she goes, which street? And I said, oh, Ivy, it's right off of Ivy. It's Dolly. And she's like, I know exactly where that's at. And I was like, as a post office person, 
you delivered, she did it for 20 something odd years and just retired. I was like, you probably know all the street names, don't you? She's like, yeah. And I said, it's interesting. I, I've lived here for 20 years. Um, I could tell you how to get to almost anywhere in the Tri-Cities, but I know it in my bones, not in physical knowledge of street names. I'm not great with street names. She mentioned that my husband's not great with street names. It always bugs him because I'll ask him where these are at. And she, he's like, I don't know. I just, and I'm like, I'm, a, I'm the same way. Listen, I know how to get to the Yokes out on 27th in East Kennewick. But here's how I know how to get there. You go over the bridge, you take a left at the church, you go down to the Dolphin Apartments, you take a left, you go down to what used to be St. Vincent de Paul. I don't know what it is now, but I know the building. You take a right on that when you go up the hill and it's on the right-hand side. What are those street names? I have no idea. Yelm is in there somewhere. Um, I don't know. That's, but I know how to get there, right? I want to know how to respond in grace and in love and in joy and in peace and in patience, not because I've got a Bible verse for every contextual situation that I find myself in, but that I just do it naturally. Paul says, gosh, that's the goal, guys. That's the telos. That's the envisioned end of this. So how do you do it? In another setting, he would write to a church in Rome and he would say, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. His, his thing for them would be on, this is something you put on. He, he would he, like use this imagery of clothing, shoes every day. I'm going to put this type of thing on. How do you do that? How do you create the habits, the rituals, the liturgies in your life where these types of things come naturally and you know it in your bones rather than be able to point to a Bible and a verse and here's why I'm doing this. This is logical, rational thought. Gosh, it just doesn't, that's not enough. It's not there. It's not, not what he's asking about. So the early church, uh, when Jesus left, you know, he, he raised up all these disciples and then he died and rose again and, and then left and commissioned them to go out and tell the world about who he was and what he meant and his teachings and all of that. They begin to say, what is a strategy for us to disseminate this information, to be together, to grow together, to hold ourselves accountable and to create the habits in our life where we don't get caught up, we don't lose sight of all of the things that we've learned. So they begin to gather together in the church. They formed these churches and they didn't meet in buildings necessarily. They didn't have uh, 501c3s, task exempt organizations. They met in homes in, in small, a lot of the bigger churches would be like 20 or 30 people in Rome meeting in a house that the house got too big. So then they'd say, let's meet in two homes. And you and you and you, you go over there because you live closer. That's how the church began and expanded in that way. And when they would meet, they would say, what are some things that we can do to develop habits, be intentional about developing liturgies and habits to be able to make this make sense for us? And so the church has always had this mission to be formational about our loves, to be formational about what it is that our, what is the telos of our life, the envisioned end of our life. Now, when it comes to this, the formative liturgy of the church, uh, we, we say this a lot of time. You've heard me say, uh, who is this church for? This church is for people who don't typically like church. Listen, I beat that drum constantly, all right? But what, for what telos, for what purpose? What is the end goal? What is the envisioned end? To be made into the likeness of Christ. This should be a safe place for anybody, regardless of their religious affiliations or their background or their history with the church or history with Christianity or anything like that, regardless of what they believe. We're like, come, 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 please, please, please. 
here, at least have some sort of a base knowledge to be able to be like, I know at least what I'm rejecting or saying yes to. For what purpose? For what's to tell us? What's the envision in? To be made, each and every single one of us, to be challenged, to be made into the likeness of Christ. How is this done? Here's what I want to do. In the same way that I have read for you a secular liturgy of our shopping model, uh, in week one or two, we talked about going to the mall and how that shapes you. Um, in, in the same way that I would say um, the advent of the cellular telecommunications devices that are in your pocket, if I was to read that secular liturgy for you, what has that done for you habitually? Habitually, it has made us feel like we are the center of the universe. This is our contact point with everybody else. This is where we manage our social images about where our, you know, our, our social media and what we, the image that we want to to uh, uh, disperse onto people. And so the, the ability to constantly be looking at it, constantly be looking at it, is what are people saying about me? <clears throat> Who's trying to contact me? Who do I have connections with? That, that habit, that liturgy, if we read that, says this is kind of made, this is kind of dove in further into this selfish analogy. So what I want to do is I want to read for you, instead of, I've done a lot of deconstruction for the last four weeks. Here's why this is wrong, 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 wrong. I want to do a reconstruction and talk about the formation of the church. I want to talk about what we do and why I think it's important. Because I think we've tried to walk through, think through the progression of the moment you set foot on this property or in this room, what are the habits that are trying to be trained to each and every one of us? What are we engaged in so that we'll become more like the telos that we are called to be Images and image bearers of Jesus Christ. All right, so three things. One uh, is confession, communion, and commission. Confession, communion, commission. They're all three C's because I'm, I just, it was memorable for me in that way, okay? You could probably translate it differently. I'm gonna spend a little bit of extra time on the first one and then kind of breeze through the last two. But every single week when you show up in an environment like this, one of the things that I think is a value that the church provides that you don't find in a lot of places in our society is the presence and the opportunity, um, uh, the space, the emotional space, the mental space to be able to engage in confession. All week long, we are taught and we uh, sit with this, this unspoken sometimes, but reality of you are good enough, you are enough as long as you believe in yourself. And for a moment, like, and, and it's illustrated even... Uh, in, in so many different ways about how um, like almost like a victim mentality sometimes too, but you're good enough. It's not your fault. Sometimes, and many times it's really not your fault. Like you're okay. And then you come in here and then some of the songs that you hear right away, if you show up early enough for worship, um, you'll hear at the very beginning and or whoever's doing the video that day say, hey, we're gonna sing a, a few songs uh, and the lyrics are going to be lyrics that are kind of like prayers put to music. Things that we would say, maybe not naturally, but it, it, it sings. And they tend to be, they, they don't say this in the video, but they tend to be a little bit dark. In fact, we've had, that's like one of our comments, our, our most frequent comments about worship here is one, the lights are really dark in here. And then, by the way, the music's kind of dark too. It's not like this happy, you're going to slay it. Go and, you know, Take on whatever goal you're, you're trying to reach. Um, when, when, when we sing these songs, many of them are more confessional in nature. More like, God, I'm broken, and I need some help, and I, 
I'm not sure where to turn. And in between the songs, we play clips of somebody reading one of the Psalms, which was the songbook of the early church. These would be Psalms that would have been, you know, throughout the generations of Israel as they kind of would, would do their pilgrimages to Jerusalem and, and to uh, back and forth through life. They would, here, here would be these songs that we'd sing. And the emotions written in these Psalms are, are like the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. It's very real life. It's very raw. It's almost too raw sometimes. Sometimes we have, um, I'll have people comment even from, the, from uh, internal church leadership go, I don't know, it feels almost too raw. I don't know that people are identifying with the rawness of the Psalms in between them. Can we do more positive things? Can we do more um, things that kind of communicate, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, you know? Um, and we don't. And even this week, so this week, in preparation for this message, um, I added a confession prayer into there. It's been a part of the church for a long time, and it's taken on different forms. Sometimes churches have gone to actually being a very formal thing where there's like a booth off to the side, and you can come in and confess your prayer through a screen to a priest or to a whoever. But in this way, we just put these, put these on the words and be like, God, I'm, I'm, I know that I'm broken. I know that I've committed sins of commission, which means these are things that I've done, and sins of omission, things that I've, I should have done and I didn't do, that I'm at fault for those. And yet, thank you for your grace and your forgiveness in this. At no point do we really let it hang at that. We, we move forward from this, like Romans chapter seven, right? We talked about that in this series, is that idea of Paul saying, I do the things that I've, I find myself doing things I don't wanna do, and the things that I know I should do, I don't do, and I'm broken and I suck. Brent translation there. And then and the next, very next chapter, or two chapters later, he goes, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's the person who goes, listen, I know I need confession. I need a space to be able to say, I'm not altogether all that good, but thank you for your grace in leading me beyond this. There was a show that came out a couple of years ago um, called True Detective. It was on HBO, um, and it uh, featured Matthew McConaughey and uh, Woody Harrelson, and they were both detectives. And in this show, um, Matthew McConaughey is, is a detective who is really great at pulling out of people sort of testimonies or uh, witness reports or getting people to talk. And so he's asked later on, it's, it's kind of like this back and forth type thing. And like, how, how are you so good at pe getting people to confess? What is it? What do you say to them? Why do people trust you uh, in, in spite of other people, you know, and even though they had a chance to do it to anybody else, they, they didn't, but for you, they do. They speak up for you. And here's what he says in this, in, in this show, right? Look, Everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everybody wants uh, sort of some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty especially, and everybody's guilty. Everybody wants confession. The guilty especially, and everybody's guilty. Listen, in our society, in our community, very rarely will you find scenarios for confession. One of the ones that stands out to me is that book that came out, man, it was like probably 15 years ago now, but Post Secret, you were invited to write postcards of all of these things that you've done. You didn't have to put your name on it, and it that they would publish them all together. You pref preferably didn't put your name on it. You didn't want that coming back to you. 
and they got and they did this experiment and they got thousands and thousands and thousands of people going, listen, this is what I'm not proud of it, and I, I have to live with this, and nobody else knows about this. But this is me. This is who I am. That rawness. We crave that, and we don't have a great outlet for that in society. And it's a great understanding for the church to say, as created beings, we are under the the submission, the authority of our heavenly Father, (coughs) and he has expectations for his created beings, and we oftentimes don't live up to that. And so we come before you, God, and we ask for your grace and ask for favor and ask for mercy in this. And, and, and we, gosh, we need that so badly, this, this humility to think that we don't have it all together. You crave that so much, even in your friendships. Every once in a while, a really good friend will sit you down and read through your BS and be like, hey, listen, you got to figure this out. You, you, uh, you need to stop calling him. You really do. You need to get a grip on this uh, this drinking thing. It feels like now it's becoming escapist, and it's not really fun anymore. These things that started out as being fun, but now it's what you do when you can't cope with life. And in those moments, well, actually, in those moments, you hate that friend, but like two days later, you're like, thank you. I needed somebody to call me on my crap and move me forward with this, this almost confession of not, den- I'm not denying that, I begin to own that. And I begin to trust that person more as a result of it. Listen, we all crave that space for confession, for a coming to grips with our brokenness so that we can move forward from there. And one of the habits the church ingrains in us every week, hopefully, is to be able to come as we are to a heavenly father who does not condemn us for those things, but says, yeah, you are broken. Luckily, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Number two, communion. And I I, want to mention uh, this, that communion, we are going to receive communion together. Communion a lot of times is uh, code for the time when a band plays and we come up and uh, participate in Holy Communion of the Eucharist, which is like bread and juice or wine or whatever, and we remember Christ's death on a cross, which is true. That's definitely a big part of it. But it goes, communion goes beyond that. It has to do with um, I, this idea of being together, this communion together. We have communion uh, with, with uh, togetherness, a gathering. What is the purpose for the gathering together? Because essentially, um, when it comes to uh, confession, like you could figure out a system to be able to do that at home with some sort of a book or audio or this or that and the other thing, or the internet, or if you were really brave on your social media pages or something like that. But when it comes to communion, there's a sense of gathering together where we are doing something. And in this, in this uh, zone, there's a, a leveling of the socioeconomic differences. Uh, the early church was known for being a place where the titles were left at the door, that when people would show up for the early church, they would gather together, they would eat a meal together, slaves, masters, um, men, women, all together. In fact, from the outsider's critique of the church, you seem to allow um, women to be in leadership. You seem to allow slaves to dine with their leaders. You seem to, uh, to like have, 
not reward people for, for being better than, the, than another person. It doesn't make sense to us. That would be their critique in this. And so what you'll notice when you come to a church, hopefully, is that there are no box seats for people who give over a certain amount of money, all right? There are no certain um, communion stations where there's vintage wine over here and then box wine over here, and you know who you are, let you freeloaders, let's go over here, and you do this, and those of you who, you know, there's none of that. It's, it's this sense of togetherness in all of this. There's a, com- a communion-type element that is very leveling when it comes to um, who we are and where we're at. From the very beginning, the church uh, of the church, titles were left at the door, and the church was a leveling reality in a world of increasing inequalities. And we participate together in remembering Christ's death on a cross and remembering our true allegiance of who we belong and what kind of a city we belong to and where our um, civic nature and uh, civic realities truly reside, not in uh, an earthly city, but a heavenly city. Communion, this perpetual reminder, okay, every single one of us has been created by God, deserves to be treated as if they were made in the image of God because they are in me as well. And we're doing this, looking around going, these are God's children. There's no, there's no room for me to feel like I'm better than them and they I. I don't know if they I is correct pronunciation. Save your emails. I'll figure it out later. But. And lastly, commissioning. On a weekly basis, we come, we gather, we participate in like this group confession. We, we commune together and we are sent out together. In the, we are sent out to inhabit the sanctuary of God's creation as living, breathing images of God. We bear his image by carrying our mission to cultivate creation and invite others to find their humanity in this story. We engage in a, a benediction at the end. I have you stand and I say, I'm gonna read a benediction for you as I send you out of here. And it's a blessing and a charge to go, but to go in and with the presence of the son who never leaves us nor forsakes us to go in peace, to love and to serve the Lord. Not to go out into a mission field as if they're broken, we've got it all together, but to go out into God's creation who he is on the path of redemption and invited to be image bearers of the truth in which he espouses and wants us to walk in. Confession, communion, commissioning. Week after week after week. I've, I, listen, I promise that when you come here that we are going to have moments of confession, feelings, whether it's in the message or in the music. At some point, we go broken, I'm broken, I'm broken. God, lead me, God, lead me, God, lead me. We're going to have a sense of community, a sense of belonging, a sense of togetherness, a sense of brothers and sisters, and a sense of going. Here's something you can leave with and take with you as you go and attempt to be image bearers in God's creation. That's what's at stake in the practice. Here's why we, this is why we do what we do when we worship. An author that I really like wrote this, Scott Sauls, he wrote, the church is not a consumer um, the church is not a consumer gift. It is an incubator in which we are called to learn to love. The church is supposed to be an incubator where we learn what it takes to love so that we can develop the habits that cause us to naturally react, to do 
with feel that we wouldn't regularly do by regular conscious thought those things which Paul says define a life that looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so week in and week out, we are reminded of these things. Why, why the necessary reminders? Can't you just do it one time? Can't you do it one time with passion, Brent, and I'll walk out and be so inspired that I'll go off and do this perfectly? Why do I feel like I need to develop this habit? Why show up weekly <laughs> or, or really once a month? Why show up once a month? Why would I need to be able to do that? Here's why you needed to be able to do that. Listen, this is why I listen to Dave Ramsey once in a while, because I need my quick fix sometimes. When I listen to Dave Ramsey, I tend to make more financially smart decisions after listening to him. I never listen to him and walk away going, I, I learned something today I've never learned before, rarely. I know all the baby steps. I know the debt snowball. I know everything I'm supposed to do. Dave doesn't provide me with new information. What I hear are inspiring stories of other people who are making smart financial decisions, and then I turn off the radio, get out of my car, and think, I should probably save more. I should probably do this. I'm not going to buy that thing that I want. You know what I mean? You go to the gym. You hang out with a friend who eats better than you do, goes to the gym more than you do. You find yourself going, you know what? I can, I can do better at this. You know what I mean? I, I, I can have a better, and, and it's not out of shame. I, I know that sometimes we, we motivate it out of shame. It doesn't work. But when we find ourselves in the practices and, and inspired by somebody who's, who's got these habits and these rituals down, <coughs> we find ourselves leaning into the reality that this is, is going to be what it takes. And here's why this is important. Uh, a question was asked of two stonecutters one day. What exactly is it that you're doing? The first replied this, I'm cutting this stone in a perfectly square shape. The second replied, I'm building a cathedral. And I can imagine the first stonecutter pausing at the second person's reply and then saying to himself, oh, that's right, I forgot. We are building a cathedral. I step back and I look at it and I think, oh, that's right. Sometimes I get so caught up in the minutia of this, I don't realize what's at fully at stake. Listen, when, when you ask, when your friends go, what, why, go to, why are you doing this church thing? Why are you going weekly? Can't you just like, I don't know, go once a year like me at Christmas or Easter and then call it good? Well, no, because I'm, I'm not just going to church. I'm building a cathedral for myself. I'm, I'm trying to shape myself into, I'm trying to shape my habits to be able to reflect the life that I want, a life characterized by love, joy, peace, and patience, and walking in the likeness of Christ. My telos, my envisioned end, is a life pattern after Christ. And day after day, and day after day, and stone by stone, with attentions to details, sometimes that only he will ever know about. I, like many of you, am on the slow grind of becoming the type of person who responds to the variances of life, the good and the bad, with love, joy, peace, and patience, naturally, like fruit in an orchard, doing by feel. I want to do by feel. I want you and me and all of us to do by feel what cannot be taught by regular conscious thought. And sometimes it takes environments that habituate us towards confession, communion, and being commissioned out. God, shape us. Shape us into the type of people you want us to be. Let's pray. Father, we oftentimes live in an unreflective state where we are driven to just more. 
And what you are inviting us to through, I think, the embodiment of the church is a life that looks a lot different than that. We thank you for what you have been doing in our lives as, us, as a result of us even participating at this level without even being aware of what's going on with it. We ask that you would help us to make the decisions that put us in situations where we can become more Christ-like more aware of what's being shaped in us by the external things and made those things, made the telos of those things, the envision end of those things, be like what is reflected through the person of Jesus and through what is described in Galatians chapter five through Paul. Give us the wisdom to know what this looks like in our life and the courage to act on it in your name, amen.